0: Um, all right, so this is the last session, um, and it's, uh, it's one I've been really excited to preach. For reasons I haven't got time to go into now, in light of some of the struggles I was talking about earlier, um, this is actually this is one of, those, one of those things where God is just really kind. Neil is the one that requested that I look at the two chapters that um, we're looking at today, the first chapter being Joshua, Bathsheba, Thetakam, and I, bam, nailed it. Um, and, and, um, and this one that we're, we're, we're going to look at now. This one is actually so foundational for my philosophy of ministry, for the way that I do what I do, but I've forgotten all about it. So just digging into it this week has unearthed, I wouldn't say many fresh gems, but it's brought me back to the place where I can pick up some of the gems that have just blessed me so much in the past. As I've just looked at the jewels that are in this passage and gazed at them, I've been like, thank you so much, God. It's like, I don't know if, you, if you've got a special place where you go, and like when you go there, it's like, oh, every time this does something to my soul. Or perhaps a certain place you go for a meal, or a, a certain person that whenever you're with them, it doesn't have the effect of sucking life out of you, but just puts fresh courage into you. This passage has had that effect on me. So um, I'm just really keen to stop rambling my intro and actually preach it to you. So uh, um, if it's okay with you, let's just jump straight in. So we're still in 2 Samuel 23. That's where all these guys are found. Um, so we, we, we met Joseph, but I, can't, I can't do it twice in a row. We met JB. Uh, by the way, I encourage you to, I mean, I want I to say I encourage you to buy my book and read about it. I and mean, that's really like, you know, awful. I can't, I'm, I'm never going to be that bloke, but read about these men in this passage. And just like, you know, hopefully you'll get as excited by me. The guy, the guys we haven't looked at, Eliezer, is a guy who fought so hard when everyone else pulled away that by the time the battle was over, the, this sword was stuck in his hand, his hand had like just literally stuck to his sword. Love that guy. There's a guy called Shamar who literally let loose to defend a field full of lentils. The most, literally, the most ninja vegan you've ever met. <laughs> um, after the passage that we're looking at now, there's also some guys called Abishai, who was um, a guy who, um humble dude that really defended the king and saved his life from, ironically, a giant. Um, and then there's also a guy called Benaya who you might have heard about. He's got a bit more like stuff written about him in different parts of um, the story of David. But he's a guy who, for, for whatever reason, reasons known only to him, he jumped in a pit with a lion on a snowy day and had a cage match. Um, so I, yeah, just, I, I love that guy as well. I you know I don't know why he did that. It's like oh look, there's a pit and it's snowing, so whoever climbs in is going to be hard to climb back out again. Oh look, there's a lion in there and he's hungry. I'm going down, boys. Um, so yeah, whatever. But what we're going to look at today um, as our final session um, is when I was young, I called it the three nameless ninjas in the book. It's called the three nameless ninjas. I'm just, I'm just going to call them the three guys because I'm, yeah, I'm 46 now and I feel a bit weird saying what I wrote when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. Um, but these three guys, um, the three, um, three of the uh, 30 chief men. And so we're going to go to verse 13 of chapter 23. And this is what I like about this passage it gets more of a narrative we get a bit, this is the chunkiest part of the exploits of the three mighty men most of them get one or two verses at most um but listen to this and hopefully you'll see why i love this passage and i you know my prayer is that by the time the clock strikes one uh because it is it is already till one not till four don't worry um or two what's, what's the three hours from you oh, oh my they are so bad at maths um yeah so um my prayer is that by the time we, we get to one o'clock you will just be like so thrilled by Jesus that it changes the way you do life, the way you do husbanding and fathering and working and churching and all that. That's my hope. Listen to this, verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. (laughs) It's an amazing story. Um, And I want to share with you why I love that story so much. I think of all the the passages um, in the the stories of of the mighty men, I had the most fun earthing this one out because there's so much in there. And to understand why I'm so excited by it, you have to understand the context. I don't know if it was, if it's passed you by, but where this story starts is so unbelievably important to understand the rest of the story. So let me read it again. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. Now, some of you guys might know about the cave of Adullam, but if you don't, Come with me to the cave of Adullam and see why I love this place. This is literally, after the cross and the the garden with the empty grave, my favorite place in the whole of Scripture. like It is such a compelling place that I want to take you. Um, It's a place um, found in 1 Samuel, chapter 22. And although this passage about the mighty men was written at the end of David's life, This episode took place very early on in um, David's life. This is before David had been crowned king. It's only a few pages on from the Goliath episode. okay? And David has had to run for his life because Saul, the king, is after him. He wants to kill him. And David has had to run for his life, um, him and his men. He's he's, he's fled to to, to different places. Um, in, In the previous chapter, he's pretended to be an actual lunatic. Um, a bit like Blackadder goes forth when he put two pencils up his nose and his underpants on his head. David literally does something like that to try and persuade um, the, the king of Gath that he's, that he's a lunatic and therefore he's, he's no danger. That's in chapter 21. Then in chapter 22, David hides out somewhere, him and all his men with him. Listen to these words in 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped. So this is a place of escape. When you, when you had to run away from something, flee something, he's escaped. He escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Listen to this. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. That's where this story starts. In a cave full of men who were ruined, wretched, wrecked by life, bitter in soul, indebted, distressed, struggling. But they heard there's a place up there, this cave up in the mountains, but there's a man in that cave. We've heard that he doesn't turn people like us away. He doesn't reject people like us. In fact, he's willing to receive us gladly and to, and to bring us in rather than to cast us out. One of the things that Satan will use um, with, with men in particular to try and cause damage to us is to try and isolate us from those who could become brothers to us. Men are really, really bad at coming together and and supporting one another. They're really good at becoming holy hermits. Men can sit in church alongside other people and be completely unknown. Men can sit in church and know all the right things to do, even serve in different capacities, but not know what it is to be fully known and fully accepted. This cave is beautiful because it's a place where busted up men found grace and found hope and found acceptance, I found a captain worth fighting for. This cave reminds me so much of my experience of finding Jesus, or rather of Jesus finding me. Because when I came to Jesus at 15 years old, I was, all these things, I was, I was distressed. I was discontented, I was broken, I was plagued by guilt, I was so full of anger, I I punched so many doors and so many walls and spoken so many words from a place of hurt and anger that I didn't even understand. When I look at these men, these ragged men, just in ones and twos, dribs and drabs, come into this cave. And in that cave being changed, it reminds me of the story of everyone who's truly encountered Christ, who arrive one way, but leave another way. Is that your experience, brothers? Is that your experience of Jesus? Is that your experience of church? Because with this king in this cave, not yet, not yet appointed king, but already anointed king, with this king in this cave, is that your experience of Christ and his church? May that be the kind of church that we all belong to. The sort of church when people in our communities are saying, where can we go for, for help, for hope? For sanity in this crazy world, who's going to speak truth to us? Who's going to put their arms around us, and no matter what we confess to them, are not going to unwrap their arms from us? That's what these men had in the cave of Aglam, and that literally, that picture is my ministry. That's why I love coming back into this this passage this week. Is it like that's what we're that that's who we are? Ragged men with a great king. That's that's what Christianity is. Not we have to make ourselves fit for the palace, but we have to come humbly to the cave. Or if I put it in a New Testament context, we come humbly to the cross. Where we see the most unlikely of kings. Not a king hiding in a cave, but a king hanging on a cross. But with exactly the same invitation to exactly the same kind of man. You messed up, you wretched you broken down. Has life smashed you? Have you failed? Do you feel unwanted anywhere else? Unloved? Unacceptable? And come. Literally, that picture of Christ on that cross with his arms stretched out. Not just a picture of sacrifice, but a picture of welcome. Because those, those nail pierced hands came off that cross. That dead body was animated back to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, stands still with his arms open, saying, who wants me? Who's coming? Bring your mess. Bring your struggles. Bring your questions. Bring your doubts. Bring your fears. Bring your shame. Bring all of it. I will not turn you away. If any man comes to me, I will in no wise cast them out. 400 men in a cave must have stunk. I mean, you know, if you're hiding from the, from the soldiers looking for you, you, you don't even go outside to go to the toilet, do you? Maybe very late at night. That came us a smelt of BO and all sorts. But what a place. What a place. It's no wonder those men love David, man. When they were just like, they had no hope and nowhere left to go. Here's a man who doesn't turn us away. Guys, that's what Jesus is meant to do to our hearts. When we hear the name of Jesus, that's it's meant to be like. I've got no one like him. There's no one like him. Others let me down. People let me down. Even those closest to me let me down. And I've let them down. All our relationships are scarred, aren't they? Who here has a perfect relationship with anyone? But those men found a captain that they wanted to live with and fight for. And so they start doing crazy things. I, I kind of had an unofficial title for this, um, this couple of talks I've done today. It's commotion and Devotion. Um, we've done the commotion this morning, 800 verses 1. This is more about devotion. Because what unfolds from this cave is just so, so amazing, man. God, I pray that as I just share these words, that you would do a deep work in our hearts. And I pray, Lord God, that I won't preach this as a hypocrite. Lord, you know this passage means so so much to me. (sighs) Masks off, Lord. Deal with us. May we come one way, but leave another. In Jesus' name, amen. Those men came bitter and busted up. But look at the way they leave and look at why they leave. Three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adjulam when a band of Philistines, they're the bad guys, by the way, (laughs) encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Now, the cave was about 20 miles away from Bethlehem. 20 miles is a number which I keep finding in the Bible. That's also the difference between the Jerusalem and Jericho and the story of the Good Samaritan. But it's also like the distance between Cardiff and Pontypool, the only two places I've ever lived. So whenever I think of like a journey of 20 miles, it's not hard for me to imagine. It's like either walking from Pontypool to Cardiff or walking from Cardiff to Pontypool, that's it. I've never lived anywhere else. It's a 20-mile stretch of road. So there's a 20-mile distance between this cave where David was hiding and the place of his birth, his hometown. You sung the Christmas carols, O little town of Bethlehem, that was like, that, that was David's town, that's where he grew up, that's where he was a shepherd boy, it says David, so it says David is in the stronghold, verse 14, and Bethlehem was 20 miles away, and in between, in a place called Rephaim, there was a garrison, that's more than one, of Philistines, so He couldn't just pop back home because of this this garrison and they were almost certainly, you know, not going to be too happy to see David. So David, as he sat in this cave, you're sort of surrounded by sweaty, smelly, stinky men. Probably not having the most comfortable night's sleep ever. There's there's, There's no mention of mattresses or sofas or sleeping bags. Probably cold, uncomfortable. He would do what any of us would do when you're close enough, a day's walk away from where you grew up, this David who grew up in the fields with the sheep, he can almost hear the bubbling brook. He can almost picture the mountains that he would have seen as a, as a shepherd boy looking after his sheep. He would have had childhood memories, positive ones, even memories of him being anointed by Samuel, that one day you will be king. But the one memory which does come back to his mind, because it's in the text, is he remembers that there was a spring of water in Bethlehem at by the gate. So in verse 15, David said, longingly, this is almost like a heart cry. Yeah, have you ever done that? Oh, I'd love a curry. <laughs> like, I mean, I do that most nights, so I ain't going to lie. <laughs> Last night, my wife was listening closely enough. Um, to, so like, my daughter said, Mom, something has like, made my little pencil case wet. I said, it was probably a Chinese meal, love hoping that Michelle was here she goes oh do you want Chinese I, oh yeah I would I just that's great so we actually we actually did have a Chinese last night it worked um, so I've got a little strategy for future uh, weekends but um he, have you, he when you want something it's like oh I would just absolutely love that have you got a place where you go for a meal only on special occasions have you got a place where you just love to go have you got an, an experience that but sometimes in those moments of like I'm really struggling where I am right now oh what I wouldn't give to be here to do that, to eat this, to drink that. Well, David has that. He says, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. He knew exactly what he wanted. Obviously, it was almost wishful thinking because between David and this water that he craved was a 20-mile stretch of dangerous road, not least because it was a garrison of Philistines between him and what his heart desired. But what I love about this story is that there were three men. Now, there were 400 men in that cave. We read that in the text. 400 men, but only three were close enough to the king to hear the cry of his heart. Isn't that interesting? Only three were close enough to their king to hear the cry of his heart, which is why I believe that this is a story that's all about devotion. Being close enough to God To know what he wants for us. To hear the cry of his heart. How close are you to your God? How is your walk with the Lord? Do you read the Bible dutifully? Or do you read the Bible because you want to hear his voice more than anything else in all the world? Do you take time on your own to pray to the Lord, to spend time with the Lord, to seek the Lord? Or do you just hope that in your busyness, God might zap you with special instructions from time to time? Do you go to church having prayed for the pastor or whoever's preaching to bring a word and for you to have a heart that's soft enough to receive it and to gladly obey it? Or do you turn up at church, exhausted, flustered, saying, oh, I hope there's something good for me. Are you familiar with the voice of your Lord? Jesus said in John 10, after describing himself as the good shepherd, he said, my sheep know my voice. It's unmistakable to us. Can I can ask you this challenging question. When was the last time you actually remember God speaking to you through his word, either in your own devotional time or through like, the life and ministry of the local church? Or through a friend encouraging you. When was the last time you heard his voice? The point where you thought, this isn't just meant to make me feel good. This is meant to change me. This is meant to cause some kind of a response in my heart to go. Because guys, that's what Christianity is. Christianity isn't just being part of a church, turning up on a Sunday, paying your tithe, volunteering from time to time, and hoping that when you get to heaven, it's, you know, that you're still sort of hanging, in, hanging on in there. The Christian life is an adventure to be lived. God has got good works for all of us to do. Every one of you, if you're listening, God wants to do, God wants to do things in you and through you. This world is in bits. There is so much struggle. And yeah, we got our own struggles, but he doesn't just want you to pray for you know, the, the broken world out there. He wants you to be part of the blessing, part of the solution. He wants you to be close enough to hear his voice, close enough to know that you might be bold enough to go. That's why I love this story. They didn't just like think, yeah, we, now we know what's on, what, what's on David's heart. Good. Because if I was to ask you what do you think God wants his church to be doing, you could tell me. Does God want his church to make disciples of all nations? Yes, you know the answers. Does he want us to, to show justice and love mercy? Yes. Does he want us to sing praises? Yes. Does he want us to be involved in world missions? Yes. Does he want us to be involved in, uh, in, in reaching out to our communities and, and, and helping the weak and the needy and, and caring for the sick and the vulnerable? Yes. But guys, it's one thing to know it up there. It's another thing to hear Jesus say something so powerfully and so deeply to you that you're like, I've got to go. It doesn't mean that you have to go and do a 20-mile stretch Take out some soldiers on the way and go and grab whatever it is that you think Jesus wants. But are you close enough to Jesus to know if if his spirit is stirring you, spurring you, wanting to use you for glorious, beautiful things? See, we're not saved by good works. Praise God for that. Because like that creates two sorts of people. If God was going to bless us and save us on account of our good works then those of us who are really good at good works would feel really proud right now, really smug. Hey, I'm doing loads of things for Jesus. I'm involved in this committee, this rota, this ministry. I do this, this, and this for the Lord. I give this much money to the church. God's going to bless people like that. They're great. I'm at the top of the list for blessing. But then there's others of us who are like, man, if God's only going to bless the people who do good works, I suck at good works. I'm rubbish at living for Jesus. My life doesn't measure up. So if God's only going to bless the people that are good, then I'm stuffed. Praise God for Ephesians 2, amen? It's by grace you have been saved. So none of us can boast. He doesn't save us because we do good works. He doesn't save us because we're the right stuff. Those who came to the cave of Aegean didn't look particularly capable of particularly good works. They were in debt. Their tithe was going to suck. They were bitter in soul. It's very hard to serve with joy when you're just so brokenhearted. They were distressed, but they were welcomed because their king understood grace. But Ephesians 2 doesn't start with we are saved by grace, not by works, so that no man can boast. Because can anybody remember how it goes after that? We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works, prepared in advance. Isn't that amazing? The God's actually got good works for us to do. But obviously, he only means the spiritual elite, right? The pastors, the full-timers. They're the only ones that God's got good works to do. That's why you pay the pastor. So he does all the work. You work your job. You pay his tithe. He does the ministry. Bam, everyone's happy. Is that how it works, Neil? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there'll be a confession booth at the back of the... <laughs> For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, if you get close to Jesus, know this. You will know his love in beautiful ways. It will blow your mind how patient he is with you with your sins and your struggles. How faithful he is when you're faithless. Even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will find promises, life-giving promises in his word that you can literally build your life on and that will outlast whatever struggle or trial you are going through. But also know if you get close enough to Jesus, he's going to say, I love you so much and I got stuff for you to do. I don't just want you to make up the numbers on a Sunday. I don't just want you to live a life that looks good to other people and you're really good at your job, but it's not just your money that I'm after. I got stuff that I want you to do. And I prepared specific ministry just for you. If only you listen. And the life of devotion, where we hear God's voice and know his grace, is alien to men on the whole, because we're a lot better at pragmatics than we are with devotion. The ladies can be the ones that have a relationship with God, The ladies can be the ones that are faithful at prayer meetings. The ladies are the ones that can talk about their feelings. The ladies are the ones that are comfortable gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, as Psalm 27 commands us to do. We're men, we're pragmatic, we just want to do stuff. Well, the danger of that is that if you just do stuff, but it's not coming from in there, it very quickly slips into religion and either pride or despair depending on how good you are at the stuff you're trying to do for him but if you allow your heart to be open to Christ and to say lord today speak to me afresh let me hear your voice again today like one of the things that scares me as i've i've, I've been a christian for 31 years not that i'm counting in those 31 years there are christians who I remember as a youngster, hearing them speak about their relationship with God and being like, "Wow, they, they really hear from God. their experience seems to be real and seems to be lived, and some of these are even in my own family, but then as the years ticked on and they started to talk about their experience of God it 's more I remember when I remember when I was like younger, God said this. I remember this time you know in my twenties, in my I was in church and I was involved in this ministry, and all of a sudden, the experience of listening to God wasn't present and lived. It was past, almost rose-tinted. Brothers, we need a daily living relationship with the Lord. Don't rest on past mercies. Don't rest on past moments of joy of serving Him. You need to hear His voice today. You need to be seeking Him in His Word today because otherwise you're gonna be just running on fumes. You need to hear him commend his love to you today. You need to bask in the glory of his grace today, and tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. Because yesterday's grace isn't gonna suffice for today, let alone for tomorrow. You brothers who are further on in the faith, you've been, you've been doing this for quite some time now. Don't just wait for heaven to enjoy that relationship again. There is breath in your lungs. I say this with love in my heart, not with any sense of retribution. There is he, there's breath in your lungs, and your heart still beats because He still wants you actively, passionately involved in His ministry and in His life, uh, in the life of His church, and in His mission to reach this world today. I love those guys. They heard the heart of their king. The king wants a bottle of water, we're getting him a bottle of water. 397 men didn't hear that cry. Three did. And they did something that, in the words of Maximus the Gladiator, echoes in eternity. We're still reading about it in 21st century Britain because they were close enough to hear the heart of their king. They said, let's go. And so they go and they, uh, they do exploits, man. I mean, they do some serious exploits. They walk 20 miles, that's an exploit these days. And, and 20 miles back, that's 40 miles. Any of you guys done that recently? The stepometer on my, on my iPhone wouldn't know what was happening. It, it, it would assume that my phone would be nicked if, uh, if it suddenly said, you know, 80,000 steps or however many it is to walk 40 miles. You're like, what's happened to die? And with my arthritis, that's not going to happen. But they went, they fought, they got that bottle of water, and they came back. Why? Because they loved their king. He could have asked for anything and they would have done it for him. This is the king who transformed them, gave them their life back. They came one way, they left another. They came distressed. They left with mission and purpose and love and courage. That's what Jesus does to men who come humbly. He gives grace to the humble. Are you close enough to hear him say, what is really on his heart. They were close enough to know, but they were also bold enough to go. (laughs) They went, they fought, they brought it back. They broke through the camp of Philistines. They drew water out of the well of Bethlehem and they carried it and brought it to David. Do you know what exploits God's got for you guys? I wonder if some of you, again, not not a prophetic word, because I, you know, just a thought, Maybe some of you know exactly what it is that God's got for you to do, but you just you just got some business you want to handle first. Yeah, I kind of think I know what God wants me to do in my life or what how I could serve him, but right now I've got this, I'm I'm in this relationship and it's not really right. And so I, until I'm out of that relationship or dealt will put it right, I can't really serve him. Or I just want to make some money, show, 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 show myself up, and then maybe I'll I'll respond to, to, to what God has got for me. I just got this habit that I can't kick, and until I have kicked that habit, then I can't really respond to the Lord. What is it that? That some of you know what it is that he's got for you to do, I really believe that. Can I encourage you if you if you think before the Lord, you know what it is that. he's got for you to do, then just spend some time praying before you go home today and say Lord whatever it is that's stopping me doing what I know you've called me to do, could you just flood my heart with so much of your love that I can't stop myself doing what you have called me to do. And if you need help or pastoral care for doing that then speak to your pastor and get some help. But maybe you don't know what it is that God's got for you to do. But would you be open to ask him? See, I don't think that God calls us all to do great exploits on the scale of this. You know, which are remarkable, really, that require, you know, weaponry. And stamina that's beyond most of us. But he's calling us all to do something with our lives. Maybe the great exploit that he's got for you to do is just to love your wife better. Maybe every time someone preaches on marriage in church you feel really awkward because like you know man there's some work needs needed doing there. Maybe your parenting just sucks maybe you're so distracted by righteous things work or like you know good deeds or even serving the church, but your kids and you don't have that relationship. Maybe you know that God is saying you need to put down some of the things that you're doing and spend more time with your kids. Why do you still got a chance to do that? Maybe some of you know that it just means like being more courageous in the workplace and speaking up for Christ. Maybe for some of you you're open to international mission. There's there's an, a, a country that God's put on your heart that you are thinking should could I use my skills to go to that country and you know, take the gospel with me, or is that just too scary? Or well, maybe you should take that seriously. Maybe you know the church that you're in is struggling for people to fill ministry positions, and you have the skills to to fill that, but you just you, your time's a bit too precious, and you'd rather not. Maybe you need to reconsider whether or not you could actually do something to serve the church. I don't know, but listen to the voice of the Lord. Get your ear next to His scriptures, and you will hear what God wants you to do. Myself and, my, myself and my wife have been meditating on this. Uh, it's, it's not a Bible verse, it's <laughs> far less spiritual than that. There's an old like, picture of an argument between the sun and the wind over who can make the man on the pavement take his jacket off first. You might have heard this story. Um, so the wind goes, I can make him take his jacket off easy, watch this. And he blows this cold wind at the man. <sighs> thinking, I'll literally blow his jacket off him. But the only effect that, that coldness has is to make the man wrap his jacket around himself tighter and say, I know there's no way I'm taking this jacket off. Then the sun says, when you're ready, I'll have a go. And the sun just shines, beams and pours warmth from the sky over the man who's got the jacket around him. until the end. He's like, oh, this, is, this, is, this is really, really hot. I don't don't need this jacket now. And he does his jacket and he takes it off and he puts it down. And you know, the worst thing that you could possibly do is try and respond to God because you feel uh, beaten or cajoled or threatened or bullied or obliged in a cold-blooded way to do what God wants you to do. That is dead religion. And the last thing I'd ever want to do is tell a room full of men, God's made you strong. He's given you testosterone. He's given you gifts. So you go and use those gifts. Do stuff for God, man. In a cold wind kind of way. David didn't say, Someone better bring me some water. He just inspired so much love in the hearts of those men that all he had to do was whisper H2O. And they were gone. Because they loved him so much. In many ways, the answer to what is it that God's got for you to do is not the most important question that I want to leave ringing in your ears today. This is the question I want to leave ringing in your ears today, my friends. Do you know how much God loves you? I mean, not up there. I mean, in there. Do you know how loved you are? I mean, a love that never fails, never ends, never dies, depending on which translation of 1 Corinthians 13 you're reading. A steadfast love that endures forever, which we're told multiple times in Psalm 136, just to try and beat the message into us. His love endures forever. Do you believe that God loved the world so much, including you, That he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not perish, though they deserve to, but would have eternal life. Do you believe, as Romans 5 verse 8 tells us, that God demonstrates his love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you hear about the cross, when you sing about the cross, when you read about the cross, do you really truly believe that he did that from a place of love for you? Your sin, your shame, all of it, he paid for it. Not because he had to, not because he was grudgingly under your heavenly command, but because he loves sinners and he loves you. I want you to delight yourselves in him, guys. That's how I'm going to end my talk. I want you to know uh, that you know that you know that God loves you. And those guys who brought failure here today, those guys who brought brokenness here today, those guys who brought habits that you can't break here today, those guys who literally are stalked by a shadow of shame wherever you go today, those guys who think that your sin is the unforgivable one who have come here today, those of you who think that you've let God down one too many times, you guys, all of you, I want you to know that His grace is deeper than all of your guilt and His mercy Far outweighs whatever mess you might have made of your life. And that his goodness is, caught, is bringing you to repentance. And his kindness. He loves you. And the cross screams it over sinners, over strugglers, over the messed up and the miserable, over the indebted and the distressed and the bitter in soul. You are love Brothers. And nothing you can do can change that. The only thing you can do is harden your heart against that fact and choose to revel in your sin and your shame and your guilt. I'll close. Oh, man, I spit on my Bible. (laughs) Sorry, Lord. Um, I guess I got a bit passionate there. Um, I'll close with this, okay? Um, Well, I'll I'll, I'll almost close with this. I'll say goodbye and stuff. But um, when I was saved at the age of 15... I had done a lot of things, even by the age of 15, that I was so ashamed of. I'm sure none of you can relate to that. And when I became a Christian at 15, I believed that God had forgiven me. But what I hadn't realized was that we have an enemy of our souls, Satan, who's got many names in the Bible, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies among them. And... This is verse in Luke chapter four, after the temptation of Jesus, after Jesus has endured his temptations and prevailed, it says the devil left him until an opportune time. And I discovered very early on in my Christian life that there were opportune times that Satan would come and draw near and remind me of stuff I'd done. And sometimes he would tell me lies. Other times he would just tell me the truth. that you did that," and that's the truth. But then he wouldn't tell me about the forgiveness I had in Christ. He would just say, let's remember what you did. Let's remember who you really are. Let's, let's focus on, meditate on, fixate on some of the lowest, worst things you've ever done. And I was really struggling to know how to fight back against that. And it crippled me for a year or so as a Christian. I still went to church, still sang songs, I still really sought God in his word. I still want, he was trying to live, but everywhere I went, there was this cloud of condemnation. And on my 18th birthday, a friend of mine gave me a Bible as a, a present for my 18th birthday. Her family did. And I remember sitting in the car after they gave me this Bible. And I was on my own in the car. And I said, and the Bible was closed. I remember saying, God, I, I know you've forgiven me, but I don't feel forgiven. So I need you to shout to Show me in the Bible that I really am forgiven. It almost was like the key to me being able to move on with my Christian life. So I did the most unholy way of doing a, a devotional ever, I just, just sort of did this. So it was open in the Bible, almost like you know, Bible bingo, you know. And I looked to and it opened on Isaiah 43. And on the top left-hand corner, so the first thing I read in Isaiah 43, in this little pocket NIV that I had, said this. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. And what God said to me in that moment, I want you guys to hear this. I'm not trying to be emotional for the sake of it, but it's emotional remembering it. He said, Die, I don't forgive you for my sake, for your sake. I forgive you for my sake. I get joy. I derive glory from forgiving people like you. And if you choose to not receive my forgiveness, then you are depriving me of the glory and joy that is mine in forgiving someone like you. And in that moment, brothers, I had a weapon. that every time the accuser, came to whisper in my ear, I could literally shoot him between the eyeballs with a truth that he had no comeback from. Die. You're guilty. <sniffs> <Poof>. Shut up. <laughs> nah. I'm forgiven. Not because I'm good. Not because I'm worthy. Not because there's anything impressive about me whatsoever. I am forgiven because I serve a God who delights to forgive sinners and who loves People like us, and we would just receive that, not just right here and now, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and live in the crazy but beautiful, truthful reality that God walks with sinners like us all the way to heaven, rinsing us of our sin, roving us in his righteousness, faithful to the end, then you will do a lot more than go and get a bottle of water for the king with your life. And I pray that you spend the rest of your lives doing what, n- not doing amazing things that you've dreamed up, but you just doing what God has told you to do, but doing it for the right reason. Living for the right reason, not to avail yourself of His love, but because you're loved. The rest of your life being an overflow of gratitude for the grace of God that saves and sustains. Rebels like us. The bit at the end of the story is mad, isn't it? He tips the water out. <laughs> that required some study. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Come on. At least take a sip. But he said, basically what David was doing when he tipped that water out, he was just saying, this is the most incredible gift. I'm going to make this way more, way more precious and way more, beautiful a gift than just something which serves me. I'm going to pour this out to the Lord and say, this precious gift, the most precious thing I have in this cave right now, Lord, even that is yours. That's what worship is, guys. May we never be guilty of laying up treasures for ourselves on earth. May we lay all our treasures down for the greater treasure, which is Christ. Amen? Amen. Can I just pray for you? I know you're probably closing prayer, but I like praying. Is that right? Yeah. Lord, bless my brothers, each of them wherever they're at, each of them, whatever is going on in their lives right now, Lord, I pray for a deep, deep awareness, knowledge of joy in your love for us. As you whisper into different years, different lives, through different means, through personal quiet times, through the preaching of the word on a Sunday, through home groups, through chatting with friends, Lord, raise up from within this room, men who are willing to say, God, if that's what you want, I'll do it because you love me, and you deserve it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.